And I do have something I want to say in this uh, political season uh, in which we find ourselves. I wanted to say something uh, about it. I know you're all sick and tired of all the all the commercials and all the push, push, push here and there. But I wanted to say something about it. I'm asking for you guys to pray. I'm asking for you guys to pray every Wednesday in particular. I myself am fasting and praying all day Wednesday. I would invite you to join me if you'd like to. And then we come together for prayer at our Wednesday night service. I'm praying for our church and I'm praying for this country. I think most of you would agree that we live in a good country. It's really a great country. It's one of the greatest countries in the world. It's one of the greatest countries in the history of the world. And I want to share with you one reason why that is. Now, when our country was founded, and we talk about this a lot, it was founded on biblical principles. The people who, who the, the fathers of our country, they established it, and, and God is threaded throughout the literature of the beginning of this nation. You read about the, the uh, Declaration of Independence. You read in the Constitution. Uh, you, you read the preamble of the Constitution. It has God everywhere in it. So it was founded on godly principles. But there's something else that came out of the formation of this country that also makes it great. And it's what I'm a, I'm a little concerned, I'm very concerned that we're getting away from what I'm about to say. And that is the rule of law. That's the theory behind which this government is based. Uh, and I'm not going to give a political lecture. I'm just going to talk for another minute about this. The rule of law means the Constitution, the law of the land, is like the highest authority in the land. And the people who serve in the government, presidents, judges, governors, Congress, all come under the law. In other words, the law is supposed to dictate to them how they govern. Are you with me? That is not the way most of the world operates. Most of the world operates by the governor, the president, the king. He is above the law. He or she can do whatever they want to do. And, oh yeah, by the way, if, if we want to, we'll check the law and see what the law says. <laughs> now, that is really how it goes. And what I am very concerned about in our country is we have leadership rising up that doesn't really care as much about the Constitution and about the law. And it's, uh, it's becoming kind of more like, well, if I want to do something, I'm just going to do it. And I will override the law, ignore the law, and make it happen. And that's what has gotten so much of the third world country into trouble, world, third world of the world into trouble. So one thing to pray about, one thing to pray about as we go up into this election is the authority of the Constitution and of the law. That we pray that people will grow in their respect for that. Now, um, <clears throat> we have a similar thing, don't we, in our religion, in Christianity? What is the rule of law for us? Yeah, it's, it's the Bible. This is what guides us. Every pastor, every Bible study leader, every church leader needs to go to this to find his or her direction. Now, we do like for people who have personality and charisma and great leadership skills, they can take the Bible and then they can take the people. Well, well, we, we want leaders in our country that do the same thing. But the respect for the law is the basic thing. The respect for the Constitution. So I'm asking you to pray. Is that, uh, is that okay? Can you guys pray for that? I really think we need it. Now, what Jesus has offered us is not only the Word of God that we follow, the Bible, but He Himself is the Word of God, so it's contained in a person. 
All of the Bible points to Jesus, and Jesus, through His Word, shapes our lives and guides us. Well, today, I want to share something that's one of the most important messages in the Word of God itself, and it is the love of God. I want to talk today about the love of God and what it takes for God to love us. It takes a lot of suffering. The book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 8 says, In this is love, that while we were still sinners, while we were still wicked in our sin, Christ died for us. That's love, isn't it? I mean, really, while we're still in our sin, wallowing in our wickedness, choosing sinful ways, Jesus decided to choose us and die for us. Of course, the most famous verse, we've already sung it today, for God so loved the world. That's his motivation for everything. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, will not perish, will not go to hell, but receive eternal life, everlasting life. And we all want that. But you know, what we want is Jesus himself. We need Jesus himself. So I want to, I want to key in on this idea that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, in this room, I'm trying to think who here has been married the least amount of time. It might be Jesse and Roblons. How long have you guys been married? So you guys might be the newest. When were you guys married? Twelve. So you got two years on these guys. So, Christy, I'm going to key in on you here. Too bad Michael's not here. Uh, I hope that your proposal was very romantic. Was it? Good. I don't know how Roblons proposed. Uh, I think I heard the story. It was in a nice restaurant somewhere in uh, Guatemala City, right? And uh, I remember Jesse telling me, like, he kept delaying things and delaying things. And it's like, when are we going to get down to whatever we're doing here today? But, you know, in America, the way you're, and, and this is the Western world, Britain too, the way you're supposed to propose, what do you do, ladies? What is he supposed to do? He's supposed to get down on his knee, right? Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that. We'll get to that in a minute. So he gets down on his knee. It can be one knee, right? Yeah. So did Michael do this? Did Roblons, did you do this? They don't do that in Guatemala. I didn't do it either. And if Donna were here, she would talk about it right now. But I didn't do it either. But this is what you're supposed to do. You get down on one knee. You take your lovely woman's hand and you look up at her and you say, I love you so much. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Will you marry me? Isn't that kind of how it goes? Isn't that so romantic? Let me hear you go, ah. Yeah, it's kind of like that. Let me hear all the guys go, ooh. <laughs> the man is supposed to propose like that. He's supposed to express his love and he's supposed to invite her into his life to live with him. Our God has done that very thing for you and me. While we were still wicked in our sin, he got down on one knee and he reached out to you and he took your hand and he drew you to himself and he said, I love you so much. I will give my life for you. Will you live with me? Will you live your life with me? God has proposed that to each and every one of us. That's his love. But one thing about his love for us that sometimes we don't think about is the cost of it. The cost of his love is enormous. You have to have more love in order to pay the cost of the love. Are you following with me? In the Garden of Eden, God had created this paradise. In the Garden of Eden, Satan did his worst work. But also, in another garden, millennia later, Jesus did his best work in the Garden of Gethsemane. He made a choice. He made a choice to love his bride and to suffer for her. 
I'd like to share with you from the book of Genesis chapter 3. After Eve had taken the fruit and she ate some of it, she gave it to her husband who was with her, and he also took. And that partnership opened the door for the fall. They did two bad things there. One is they disobeyed God. Now that's bad enough. But you know, they did something else that actually sealed their wickedness. They disobeyed God and they obeyed Satan. When they did that, they handed over the authority of this world into the hands of Satan. They handed over the rulership that was supposed to be theirs and they gave it to Satan. And that's what Jesus had to win back for us. That we're supposed to have it. We're supposed to carry it. The authority is supposed to be ours. And Jesus won it back from Satan and he keeps trying to give it to us on this planet. Well, when they, after they had fallen, after they had fallen, it says, then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. So they realized they were naked. They were ashamed. And they couldn't relate to each other with the familiarity and the friendship that they had before. So the fall of man, the sin of man, brought a division between the man and the woman. Because we'll see it acted out just in a couple of verses. And then the next thing they did, they heard God coming. And what did they do? They hid. They hid. And God came looking for them, calling out to them saying, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was a naked and I hid myself. And God saying, whoever told you you were naked? Did you eat of that tree? He knew right away what they had done. And the man said, it was that woman you gave me. He's doing two bad things in the same breath. He blames the woman and he blames God. It was that woman you gave me. <laughs> you gave me a defect, God. Yeah. So then, what does the woman do? She blames the serpent. And <clears throat> there's so much that we could talk about here. But I want to pull out a very important thing. Satan's worst work that he does is he brings division. He's trying to split us up. It's bad. He tries to split you and me up. Satan is delighted every time he can split up a couple and bring about a divorce. Satan is delighted every time he can split up a church and cause fighting in the church and a division in the church. Satan is delighted when he can split the pastor from his people. Satan is delighted when a family breaks up, father and son become enemies and they don't talk to each other anymore. That is Satan's work. It's what he's done from the very beginning and he does it till this day and he does it the same way over and over. He keeps trying to divide. It's why we have in our in our declaration, it seems kind of funny, you know, we have all these exalted statements. He's, he will heal the blind, will, in his name will heal the blind and, and the deaf, and then we will not gossip. I, it's kind of a funny thing to put in that declaration that's so poetic, and you get to that and it's like, will not gossip. There's a reason for that. It's because that's what Satan used to break us up all the time. That accusation, that, that defamation of character, that critical spirit. The reason we have that, um, look at this guy trying to, trying to disturb. Can someone hand me a cleaner? I don't want that to fall on anybody. I don't want it to fall on Judy in the middle of the service here. Jeff, sorry. Oh, look at it. It dropped right in there. Way to go. Let's have a big hand for our hero. <laughs> Who in here doesn't like spiders? Okay, the whole row right there, so that's good. <laughs> okay. So um, 
Satan, what he does is divide, and that's what we're so coming against in our church. We're trying to do the opposite. We're trying to bring people together who don't normally spend time together, don't live in the same neighborhoods, and don't go do stuff together. We're trying to do the opposite of what Satan does in the name of Jesus to bring about the unity that Jesus, God, originally created. So the other division is a division between man and God. But God came looking for man. Adam didn't go, where's God? Where's God? He was hiding. God is the one who came looking. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is love. That's the love, and and it cost God something. God had to pay for our sin Himself, because we couldn't pay for it. We couldn't pay for it and maintain relationship with God. We could pay for it, cast us into hell and leave us there, but we can't have relationship with God that way. God wants us to be with Him. So He comes looking for us and He comes and He offers this marriage proposal. But you know, most guys, when they're proposing marriage, they're thinking, this is going to be great. I'm going to have a woman for the rest of my life who's going to cook, who's going to clean my clothes. She's going to take care of my house. She's going to be my... She's going to make me look good, right? He's got all these ideas of what... But you know, and it's this way for the woman too. It isn't always the best thing. <laughs> you know, there's this wonderful book about marriage and the subtitle, it's called Sacred Marriage. And the subtitle is Marriage. God didn't create marriage to make you happy. He created marriage to make you holy. And boy, that's a brutal uh, truth because holiness comes through suffering. The love that God dispenses to us cost him so much. The suffering, the suffering, the suffering. But God is willing to suffer for the sake of unity, the opposite of what Satan does, which is division. God comes to bring unity. He's always working toward unity. So you can tell, is God in the middle of this or not? When you're having like something going on and, and some relational crisis, is this moving towards unity or is it moving towards division? If it's moving towards unity, God's probably in it. If it's moving towards division, Satan is probably in it. I think we can pretty much count on that there. But I want to say that the love of God is always greater than the division of Satan. God's love is greater. God's love is stronger. But God still requires us to respond to his proposal. I mean, what would it be like if the guy, you know, he's kind of nervous and he's going to propose to his woman and he goes, <clears throat> he gets down on one knee. He, 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 he just, he says, you know, I really love you and, and I really, really want to, Stephen, how long have you been married? You're the newest one in here then. Okay. 14. Okay. Okay. Two years for you coming up, huh? Yeah. So the guy's really nervous and he says to her, you know, I, I really love you and, and I, I'm so in love with you. I, I give you my heart. I want to, I want to live for you. And what if she's standing there, you know, she grabs his hand, okay. He says, what's for dinner tonight? Can we go to McDonald's or something? And doesn't even answer his question. That's pretty rude, right? So I'm afraid that that's how we are sometimes. Our God has made his proposal of marriage to us. And we're thinking, what's for dinner? Uh, you know, we're thinking, how can I get out of this situation right now? And God's wanting to engage us in his love. And we're, we're just not really too interested. But God requires that we answer him. We have to say yes or no to Him. He demands it. If you ignore Him, you're saying no. You ignore God, you're saying no. But if you answer Him, yes, then you've chosen life. You've chosen that eternal life. You've chosen to obey Him when you say yes. You've chosen to not eat that fruit 
when you say yes. You've chosen to stay united because of His love for you. Our love for God is only a response to His love for us. When He said, I'm giving my life for you, you want to live with me? And you say, yes, I love you, God. I want to. That's just a response. We didn't initiate anything. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God comes with much suffering. In the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was faced with the choice, He said to God, God, if it's possible for this to go another way, could we do it another way? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus chose God's way, and that's why we can be here today. Jesus carried the weight of the world on His shoulders in that Garden of Gethsemane. And it was His love for us that carried Him through. In Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verse 1, doesn't it say, uh, Jesus, whom for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. When it says the joy that was set before Him, do you know what that's talking about? That's talking about you and me. You are the joy of God. You are the object of His love. You are the object of His desire. His joy is you. Isn't that good news? Man, I love that. Well, I want to finish up today by telling about a wonderful man. Uh, his name was Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Has anybody heard of him before? Two people. All right. <laughs> okay. Nicholas, I'll just call him Count von Zinzendorf. He was German, born in the year 1700, and he founded a community of Christians that was called Hernhut, which means the Lord's Watch. And it got that name for a specific reason. These were a group of people who were called Moravians. And Moravians are people who kind of have a funny little maroon-colored hat. I'm not talking about the Shriners, but it's, it's a little bit like that. And the Moravians were escaping persecution from Eastern Europe. And there were about 300 of them because they were killing them back in Eastern Europe. And they were escaping, finding a place to go. And they came into Germany and they came to this guy his name was Zinzendorf, and they said to him, can you give us a place to live? He's a very wealthy man who had lots of land. And so he said, sure, you can come and stay here. And from that, from that uh, cooperation, a community known as the Moravian Church began to grow. And it is best known for its unparalleled missionary zeal. They were some of the best, most inspiring missionaries of the world ever. This community started a prayer, and this is where they got their name, the Lord's Watch, Herrnhut. They started a prayer meeting in 19, or 1727. This prayer meeting went 24 hours a day for 100 years. Can you believe that? 24 hours a day, 100 years, and there were 300 people. Now, they didn't all pray all at the same time. What they would do, they had a prayer house, and People would say, I'll pray for an hour. I'll pray from 6 until 7. Someone else would say, I'll pray from 7 until 8. And so those 300 people began this prayer watch 24 hours a day. And 100 years, you're talking three generations. So the children and the grandchildren would have to get involved to see that completed. So those 300 people started this prayer meeting 24 hours a day. Now, that's amazing right there. But this is why... We're pushing so hard for these Wednesday nights is because the only permanent, lasting, dramatic change that happens is through prayer. We can work, work, work really hard, but the changes won't be permanent and they won't be life-giving if prayer isn't with it. it I'm telling you the truth. It's just, it's what I know. 
And I know that if we as a church can begin to really pray, then our missionaries will thrive and prosper. That our missional outreaches here will thrive and prosper. But if we don't pray, it's just going to be a lot of sweat and hard work and money that goes after those things, and it's not going to make any difference. I really believe that with all my heart. I know it's true. And I want to use this as an example here. So here uh, here we are, this 100-year prayer meeting, 65 years into it. 65 years. This is now 1792. The prayer meetings are still going. This is amazing. That little community that started off as only 300 people, by the year 1792, that community had sent out 300 missionaries to the world. And they sent them out to these places, the West Indies, Greenland, Lapland, Turkey, North America, and even Shimla, India, where we have that orphanage over there. I was uh, told by Lori, who's been to Shimla and discovered some of the things about it, that those those missionaries, Moravians, who went to Shimla, they brought apple seeds with them. And they planted apple seeds over there in Shimla. And she said, harvest time, the apples in Shimla are some of the best you've ever had. They have them to this day. I think that's that's awesome. See, the, the Moravians would go to try to not only bring about salvation of souls, but economic uplift as well. There are some uh, missionaries from Switzerland who went to Africa and taught them how to plant cocoa, beans, and <clears throat> chocolate came up out of that. And that's why the Swiss are so big on chocolate is because they had missionaries that went to Africa to grow them. And so then they processed it back in uh, Switzerland. But these missionaries were utterly... It's why I wanted to pray for the coffee today uh, because I want to see the Congo rise up above the the suppression that Satan has on that country in order to see him do well. These missionaries were utterly and radically dedicated to making Jesus known throughout the world. And I want to show you the next picture here. And so that's Count von Zinzendorf. I want you to look at this picture. This is kind of interesting. Zinzendorf, this is how this all started from this one event. This man, Nicholas von Zinzendorf, wealthy man, traveling around Europe and was going to museums to look at art. And he stopped in the country of uh, the city of Dusseldorf, Germany, and he saw this picture. And it's not the nicest picture, really. It's a picture of Christ, and it's got the crown of thorns on his head. It's not even the most dramatic. But if you look up here, you can see, what do you see there? There's some blood coming down from this crown of thorns. Now, Zinzendorf saw this picture, and he just sat down, and he started to look at this picture. He spent the whole day looking at the one picture, just looking, looking, meditating. Now, the thing that really caught his attention was this Latin phrase under here. Underneath the picture, these words were printed. This have I suffered for you. Now, what will you do for me? You see, this is the proposal of marriage that Jesus has offered to you. I love you. I have suffered for you. Our love for him is simply a response to his suffering and love for us. So the question Zinzendorf had to answer was, what am I going to do for Jesus? And Zinzendorf wrote this in his journal that day. He said, I have loved him for a long time, but I have never actually done anything for him. This is before the whole Moravian thing. From now on, I will do whatever he leads me to do. Simple. That's what he said. From now on, I'll do whatever he wants because I love him back. He loves me. He suffered for me. I will love him too. So for the rest of his life, Zinzendorf's central theological focus for himself and for these people who came to live with him was the blood of Jesus. 
that the blood of Jesus had that central place in all of his doctrine and devotion. The story goes on that the first two young missionaries, I don't know what year it was, but it was before that uh, 65-year anniversary. Two young missionaries, two young men, they boarded a ship in Copenhagen and they were planning to go to the West Indies. They couldn't afford passage on the ship. So you know what they did in order to go? They sold themselves as slaves to cover the cost of the passage. They went as slaves to the West Indies. They decided, since Jesus suffered for me, I'm willing to suffer for him. Twenty out of the first 29 of those missionaries that went to St. Thomas and St. Croix died in those first few years. So these missionaries, these two men, as they were getting ready to leave, they raised their hands to their all their friends on the shore of the river, and they were they yelled this out to them. And it's become a sacred pledge of missionaries around the world, and for me too. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May Jesus receive the reward of all of his suffering. So whenever we do mission work, whenever we do outreach, whenever we pray for the world, we want to see Jesus receive what he deserves, which is the reward of all the people he suffered for. That's the whole world. That's all the lost. It's all the people who are wicked and lost in their sin and their shame. Jesus suffered for them. He deserves them. And he wants you and me to be the ones to reach out in love, in his love, to them. His blood is the sign of his love. So as we come to our close here today, I just want to share this verse from Romans, Romans chapter 8. Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, even, he's the one who raised up from the dead. And he is at the right hand of God. And he's interceding for us. So then there's this question, who will separate us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword, or the 2016 election? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, <laughs> nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.